For those who've been with us for some time, we are in the book of Matthew, a biography of the life of Jesus. If you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, we're in a portion of this biography, this gospel account, where Jesus has been increasingly making the religious ruling class angry with him. And today is sort of the the empire strikes back version or, or response in that the religious ruling class is going to set three traps, three traps for Jesus to fall into so that they can ensnare him and ultimately bring a formal charge against him. These three traps will come in the form of three questions. And these questions are incredible. I mean, these people know what they're doing, they're smart, and they're getting together and they're devising up questions to ask Jesus to trap him so that no matter what he says, no matter what he can do to try to get out of it, he will be trapped and give an answer that will ultimately lead to the ability of them bringing a formal charge against him. So you could imagine the, the, the pressure and the intensity here. Remember, we're, it's Passover time. There's tons of people. These people are going to gather in front of the masses. They're going to present this very difficult question and say, answer us, Jesus, answer it. And like on the spot in front of these people, you're going to have to basically answer a trick question. It's very difficult. I mean, some of you have problems just, you get asked, what do you want to, where do you want to go out to eat tonight? And even with a loved one, you can't bring yourself to answer that question within 20 minutes. But... Jesus has all the pressure in the world on him. So let's dig in, Matthew 22. Uh, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So remember, the Pharisees, they know the scriptures. They're smart, they're brilliant. And this group of people has, they've plotted and they've designed a specific question to ensnare Jesus in such a way that they could bring a formal charge against him. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Now, two opening notes based upon uh, the opening up to their question. First, dealing with the Herodians and then the words that they choose to to begin to talk to Jesus with. So the Herodians, uh, the Pharisees send their disciples along with these guys called the Herodians. Now, truth be told, um, we know very little, almost like next to nothing about this group of people called the Herodians. The literature is, it's not there. The historical evidence is not there. So sort of based upon their name, what we could probably assume is that the Herodians are a group of people who are loyal to the house of Herod. They like King Herod, they, like, they want his lineage rest- and his sons and kind of that family to be restored in power, which then means that they are probably sympathetic to Rome because the Herods were sympathetic to Rome. Now, the reason why that might be important is because they're working with the Pharisees at this point. The Pharisees are not sympathetic to Rome. So why in the world would the Pharisees be plotting with the Herodians? Likely, we don't know, but probably that old principle that um, if you have the same enemy, you could become the best of friends fairly quickly. So something like that is probably taking place. They don't like each other, but they really hate Jesus. And so they're willing to work together to bring a formal charge against him. Now, what's the question? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. This is 
the perfectly designed question that they come up with to try and snare and trap Jesus. Now, even without any historical evidence, you don't have all the information, you know that just because they're bringing up politics and taxes, that this is going to be like a trap. Because no matter how you answer this question, without any other information, you know that there's gonna be some people there who are extremely mad, no matter how you answer that. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, the complexity of this question is deep. There's tons of layers to it, but before we get into all of those layers, I just want to show you uh, how the trap is designed, like what's the nature of the trap. Is it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, don't think the word lawful, don't think like, is it legal to pay taxes to Caesar? Of course it's legal. The question, the, the heart of the question, is it right before God to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, if Jesus answers no, it's not the right thing to do before God to pay taxes to Caesar, then he's basically expressing words of revolution and he's a revolutionary figure and he will be accused of treason. You don't just get to say you don't get to pay tax to Caesar. So his words would be treasonous and that would be the formal charge. If Jesus says, yes, it's the right thing to do to pay taxes to Caesar, then he will be seen as someone who's, who's willing to compromise and submit to Rome in order to save his own neck. It's almost like a sellout. There'll be words of selling out and compromise because the masses there they see Jesus, the one who's willing to speak the truth. And remember, it's Passover time. And Passover time means deliverance time. And if you go back to the Exodus, what happens during that time? God defeats Pharaoh in Egypt and delivers his people. Jesus has come in. He's been proclaimed the son of David. He's a Messiah figure. So like by definition, the Messiah cannot submit to Rome in order to save his own neck. So one way, treason. One way are words of compromise and selling out. And it's sort of set up in this yes or no situation. But it goes much further than that, and we have to understand the layers and complexities to this question. So, Ten Commandments. The Big Ten. First commandment, no other gods before me. The second commandment, depending upon what... uh, Bible you may be familiar with, it may say no idols, no carved images, or sort of the old school way of saying it was no graven images. So second commandment, don't have graven image, don't have carved images. That command led many Jewish people in the time of Jesus to be repulsed by the image of Caesar on a coin. So if you were to use coinage that would have an image, a graven image, a carved image of, say, the emperor and be using that in a holy land, Jewish sensibilities would say you might be somewhere close to committing idolatry and breaking the second commandment. Now, this was such a big deal that, and there was such a much kind of unrest and potential political turmoil of it that Rome at this time period allowed the Jewish people to mint their own copper coins. Now, there's a reason why they allow them to mint their own copper coins. Well, one, if they minted them themselves, they wouldn't put the image of another human being on it. And so they would say, we're not committing any type of idolatrous act. But secondly, you could only do copper because copper isn't worth as much as, say, silver or gold. So for everyday normal activity, like cheap stuff, day-to-day spending, Jewish people could use these copper coins that they minted themselves. But Rome still minted and owned the silver and the gold. They were in charge of that. But to kind of move things along and not create too much trouble, let's just let them have their own coins that don't have any graven images. 
on them. Now this is such a big deal that in AD 6, a man by the name of Judas of Galilee, don't be confused with Judas of the 12 disciples who betrayed Jesus, just a guy named Judas from Galilee, realized that Rome was going to take a census in Israel, roughly 6 AD, and that census would be used for tax purposes and there would be inevitable implications about what coins that they were going to use. Now he led a revolt in AD 6 over, the, over these issues, census, taxes, coinage, which means that when Jesus is being asked this question, fresh in people's mind is the fact that just a couple decades ago, there was another Galilean man who came down here to Jerusalem and led a revolt based upon this issue of graven images on coins. So take all of that with you now. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Okay, remember, um, Jewish sensibilities would say that coins that had the image of the emperor on them, which was pretty much all the silver and gold coins being minted, that that would be anywhere, depending upon the person, that would be something feeling like a gross moral compromise all the way to a clear violation of the second commandment. So, your kind of religious conservative Jew would not like the coins that Rome printed because they would always have the image of Caesar on them. Now, the coin in question, this denarius, is a specific coin that was used for a specific tax, and it's the tax in question. It's called the poll tax, and you would use this denarius, who was called a tribute penny, in order to pay it, and every single person, one time a year, would give one tribute penny to pay this specific tax. And the tribute penny was made of silver, and it was worth roughly a day's wage. So no matter who you are in Israel, man or woman, young and old, you would have to pay one tribute penny, one silver coin to do this tax. So most people at this time historically, they're not, a, they're not, they're not liking the image of Caesar on their coin that they have to use to pay taxes to Caesar, especially because they're in the promised land, the land that God gave them. However, it's sort of one of those things, this is once a year. I'm not having to use this. I'm not having to keep these coins on me. They're not what I'm using on day to day, but I, I, I have it. I'm just going to go pay the tax. But there's another layer to this coin that you have to understand. There's more than just an image of Caesar on this coin. This is the tribute penny from the time of Jesus. On the left, you have a picture of one of the Caesars, Tiberius Caesar. But written around the face of Tiberius Caesar, it says, Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, in Latin, Divifilius, son of God. On the right, you see the other side of the coin, and reading left to right, you see Ma Maxim Pontiff, which is high priest. So on the tribute penny, the silver coin, is not just a carved or graven image. You have blasphemous words of idolatry. This is Caesar's claim to be the son of God and the high priest of the world. You see this. So if any coin's gonna get you upset, it's this one. You're not gonna wanna use it. And so you're gonna be, if you're, if you're a religious Jewish person, which everyone is at the time, you're gonna be in, in Israel, you're gonna be anywhere from, I really don't like doing this, but I'm not gonna get my family killed for this thing that happens once a year, to all the way, no, it's time. This is enough, this has crossed the line. So no one likes these coins or at least externally, you're supposed to pretend as if you don't like these coins. 
says, son of God, high priest. Look what Jesus does. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now you read that and just go by real quick like no big deal, but you see what Jesus just did. This is a brilliant move. Uh, I, don't have one of, I don't have one of these coins. I, Jesus and the disciple, we don't, we don't carry one of these blasphemous tribute pennies. Um, can you guys bring me one? And guess who has one? They have one. They're the ones with the coin. So, so all of a sudden, Jesus has immediately turned the tables on them for the second time. It's flipped everything, right? It was, it was, a, it was a trap and a, and a way to ensnare him, and now right out of the gate, I, I don't have one of those coins. Oh, you, you happen to have one. The coin that says, Divi Filius, yeah, the, the son of God and the high priest. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm glad you have one. So now all of a sudden, you see what's taking place. This is a brilliant, brilliant move. Then Jesus says this, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and they went away. In other words, who minted this coin? Who who mints the silver tribute penny? Caesar does. And how do you know? It has his image on it. It has his likeness, his inscription. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But you render to God what is God. But there's more. Because this word, whose likeness and inscription on this? The Greek word for like, likeness here is icon. And this is the same Greek word that's used to translate the Hebrew word for image way back in Genesis. When? When God says, let us make man in our image. And then God creates man and woman in his image. So follow this. What's the image that's in everyone's mind? When, when Jesus asks this question, the image that's in everyone's mind is everyone's mind is the image, particularly the image of God. So Jesus says, Who's, who's, whose image is on this coin? Oh, Caesar's. Therefore, give it to Caesar. Okay. But give to God what is God's. And the implication, the question everyone in the crowd is, is picking up on is, well, what's Jesus trying to get at? Humans are made in the image of God. Therefore, give of your entire being to God. Now, you have to understand how, how incredible this tactic was. It's a way for Jesus, using scripture, like in one sentence, to basically do something like this. You guys are coming at me pretending as if you are worried about a tax to Caesar when you have not even given God your heart. You haven't even given him your being. And remember, that's strike two. He just threw strike one when he said, can you give me the coin? So you're going to come at me pretending as if you're offended like, by this, like there's a legitimate question here. All the while, you carry the silver coin, and more importantly, you're pretending if that's offensive to you. Meanwhile, you offend God because you have not properly given what is his, namely yourself, your entire being, your heart, because you are made in the image of God. So strike one, strike two. You have to understand, like, the... The, the religious experts of the day got together and came up with a one-sentence question to trap Jesus. And in a few responses, flipped it. 
flipped it completely. So strike one. You guys got the coin, man. Don't, don't front. Come on. Two. You're not even giving to God what is his. Caesar minted those coins. Pay, pay your tax. But who minted the human? Who created the human? God. Give to him what is his. And you got to understand, he's not just saying something like, well, we have our copper coins, and those are the, those, that's like God's currency. So make sure to, to give your tithes and offerings and make sure to dedicate your prayer shawls and all your other religious items to God. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the category of humanity. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God, to God. Now, in order to fully understand this, you have to have a little bit of an understanding of what does it mean to be made in the image of God. And so for that, we have to go back to Genesis, where the scriptures speak of this act. Then God said, let, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. I joked around earlier, uh, I love that translation and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth because there's some of you who like just despise creepy things and the scripture like makes poetry of the creepy things, like all the creepy things that creep on the earth. You know, some of you are just wired, like just me doing this is to you, you know? Mm, it's in the Bible, don't trip, it's good. Mm. Okay, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Again, this emphasis. He's creating all human beings in his image. And then it repeats itself. It's almost redundant, but that's the, that's the point. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So humans, are made in his image. But what exactly does that mean? And does that have anything to bear on Jesus' use of this imagery in the Gospel of Matthew? Oftentimes, we talk about being made in the image of God, and we say it a lot, but we, we never ask the question again, like, what, it, what, it, what precisely do we mean by that? So when you think of the image of God, think of a, a coin that ha it has two sides. Part of being made in the image of God has to do with value. The other part of it has to do with function, or you could use the word vocation or job. So one side deals with value, one, died, one side deals with function. First, the value side. When we say that all people are made in the image of God, we are saying that human beings, uniquely in all of creation, have an intrinsic and innate value that separates them from everything else in the created order. Humans bear the divine image. They bear the royal image. They are made in the image of God. Therefore, no matter what, they have value. No matter what they do, no matter what's happened to them, no matter their story, they're image bearers. No human being can take that away. They mean something. They have value. There's purpose. Okay, so it's a value statement. Humans matter. They're made in the image of Almighty God. The second part of being made in the image of God has to do with function, and this is the one that's often neglected. It's kind of, it's, it's a little different for modern people to think about, but when we talk about the function of image bearing, we're talking about what Genesis just repeated like three times. 
they are to have dominion over creation. In other words, human beings as image bearers are delegated authorities. They are delegated authorities. God gives them this authority to exercise dominion over creation. God is king of kings, lord of lords. He's in charge of everything, but he has granted delegated authority to the image bearer. And the image bearer is supposed to exercise dominion over creation. Now, they are not supposed to exercise dominion over creation in an independent, autonomous manner. They are meant to reflect the wise rule of God in heaven on earth so that when you see an image bearer ruling and reigning and managing and exercising dominion, you get a glimpse of what the rule of God looks like. Now, um, the ancient Near Eastern world that the Bible, that the Genesis was written is much more familiar with these categories. So for example, um, the Pharaoh in Egypt was said to be the image of God. Why? Because Pharaoh was put as Pharaoh by the will of the gods and the Pharaoh exercises the will of the gods down here in Egypt. And so when you're seeing Pharaoh rule, you're supposed to get a glimpse at the will of the gods. Now this, by the way, is a brilliant political move because um, if you question the rule of Pharaoh, you aren't just questioning a human being. You're questioning the rule of the gods. Now, the Judeo-Christian tradition takes a radically different turn here. It's a radical departure. Because in Egypt, the image of God was Pharaoh. In the scriptures, you have what some people call the, the royal democratization of the image. Meaning, no longer is it just the king or the Pharaoh who has that right and authority and image, but all human beings are made in his image. And all human beings have a responsibility to be delegated authorities. I mean, this is, this is a radical departure. In other cultures, there's the image, that's the king. You question him, you're questioning the gods. But in Christianity, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, everyone, everyone is made in the image of God. And everyone is supposed to be someone who exercised dominion, but exercises dominion in a way that mirrors the goodness and wise rule of God. In, Ro in the Roman Empire, as the empire spread, um, different Caesars would put statues and images of themselves all spread out throughout the Roman Empire. So there might be Caesar, who is the image, the, the son of the divine Augustus, like the coin said, but he's only in one place, say the capital in Rome. But there's this statue that's put all the way on the coast of Spain, to the fur furthest reaches west, so that everyone knows, even if you're way over there on the coast thousands of miles away, make no mistake about it, you see the image of Caesar, that means his rule, his law, his dominion extends to this place. And ancient people just, they knew these categories. There's, there's the image of Caesar, that means his rule, his law, his reign is exercised in this place even if he is physically in a different location. So the, the, the concept behind image bearers is one of value but also of function. We're the delegated authorities. God in his wisdom said, human beings, you are to live on earth and you're supposed to exercise a rule that reflects my goodness. And when you do that, everything will go well for you. And by the way, that is, that is true. When human beings look at God's revealed 
law, his revealed moral and ethical demands of the world, and you implement them, you do what God wants you to do, it creates a world of human flourishing. If you disregard that, you will create a world of human suffering. Let the reader understand. Like You will inherit the suffering of following your will rather than God's. So an illustration that I've used in the past to kind of get this kind of conceptual idea of bearing the image of God, um, I've used it s- several times so it might be familiar to some of you, but picture a, a young couple that just got married and they happened, I mean it is, it's incredible this story, and they actually in- secured an incredibly low interest rate and were able to buy a new home. <laughs> young couple, man. Nice low interest rate, nice price on the house. And um, they get married, they love each other, everything's great, and they have a few kids. At a certain point, those kids will get to the age where mom and dad will, stop, will start adopting language of delegated authority. For example, this 12-year-old in the house now, they may begin to say things like, go to your room, or you need to clean your room. Okay? Now, that language is being adopted because they are granting responsibility to the child to care for the room as if it was their own. But make no mistake about it, that room and every other room in that house belongs to mom and dad. Now, sometimes the, the child can be confused on the adoption of such language and they take it to another degree. And then they begin to say things like, Mom, get out of my room. In which case, mom and dad reply, no, sweetie, I don't think you understand the, the way this language is working and the delegation of authority here. See, your father and I, we own this home. And everything in your room we bought, you paid for nothing. And so we're, we're allowing you the responsibility to treat this fear as if it actually 100% belongs to you. But in actuality, it doesn't. Would you like to see the going rate for a, a one-room access to a bathroom? because we can make it more yours than it is now. So, and then when the parents say, go clean your room, what are they doing? They are saying, we want you to manage your room in a way that meets the standards of how we run this house. And you have to be home at a certain time and you have certain chores to do because the, the wise rule in mom and dad needs to be implemented by the child and you're delegating some authority and responsibility so that they learn to do it. But the child should not ever get confused and think like they co-signed on the loan. (laughs) Likewise, human beings, God created a world. It's his world. It belongs to him. But he put human beings on it, his image bearers, who have intrinsic and innate value. And because they bear his image, he wants them to extend his dominion and exercise rule and reign in a way that reflects the goodness of the one who's actually owns the whole earth. So you see how image works. There's, there's a component of value and then there's a component of function. Now, here's the issue. Human beings, historically, and certainly at the time Jesus is talking in the first century, have not necessarily done a great job at image bearing. Because when you see a human, if the human is being human, in the most truest and purest sense, you will get a glimpse of the goodness of God. 
It's his image. And when the image is imaging right, you get a glimpse of the good character and the good will of God. But when Jesus is speaking, you're looking around, and maybe you're looking around today, and you're going, you know, us, us humans, we're, we can be a terrible bunch, you know? We're not bearing that image. And when Jesus is speaking to that crowd, there's the inevitable implication is you're not bearing the image. And you're not bearing the image because you haven't even given yourself to the one in who, is whom image you bear. So this is a big deal because it essentially is saying you are failing at the humanity project. You aren't being human in the truest sense. You are rejecting the wise rule of God. And this is, why the way, by the way, when, um, when humans act incredibly horrible, we use words like it was an inhumane act that they did. What are you trying to capture? Like, this is, it's inhumane, it's inhumane treatment. Like, this is not how humans ought to be or act. It forsakes our sacred vocation and calling, what it means to be human. And so humans are failing at being human. And so you take that back and you see all of this compressed into a few verses. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. When they heard it, they marveled and they left and went away. Strike one, you guys got the coin. I don't. Strike two, you're pretending as if if you care about this tax issue when you don't even give your whole being to God whose image you bear. Strike three, you are failing at the human project. You aren't even bearing the image. And you can see that trace specifically for all of humanity in the scriptures, but for Jesus' listeners here, what have we just seen in the last few chapters? My father's house was designed to be a house of prayer for the nations, a house of prayer for all nations, for the Gentiles, so that everyone could come here and worship and see the true God. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. See, Israel had a vocation too. They were to bear the image and be the nation that would would build the temple and be the light of the world in Isaiah, the light of the Gentiles, so that people would see that and then they would get a glimpse of the God of Israel and they would come to worship and know the one true God. But that's not happening. The house of the Lord is is a den of thieves. You guys got the coin, you're failing to bear the image, and you're failing at humanity. How do they respond to this? After strike one, they strike out, then, you know, what what do they do? Okay. What's up? Okay. Okay, Jesus. See you at Passover time. Verse 22, when they heard it, they marveled and they left and went away. They came trying to trap Jesus. Jesus turns the table on them, accuses them, convicts them in front of the whole masses and all they could do is marvel and walk away. That happened like in four verses. Follow this, remember, the religious experts of the day crafted, they designed a trap and the master teacher Jesus has them just walking away. Well, who's gonna tell the rest of the Pharisees how today went? You know? 
It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Now, at this point, it's easy to, um, like, yeah, man, Jesus got him. But their issue is similar to our issue in that um, when we look around the world and we look at each other, ourselves, and other human beings, um, you realize that humanity is still not doing a great job at this human thing. Because we're, we're, we're angry people. We're violent people. We're filled with jealousy and rage and bitterness. We speak evil to ones that we say we love. We're prone to gossip and slander. Devise all kinds of wicked things in our hearts. And so it's like, how are these images supposed to give us a glimpse of the goodness of God when we can't even seem to get along with each other or our loved ones for more than a week? Like, how does this work? So a very few people, actually no one realized that at that moment 2,000 years ago, standing in their midst was the perfect image of God. The perfect, exact, expressed representation of infinite, holy, almighty God. Standing in their midst was the image, the perfect image. Colossians 1.15 says this, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When God himself in the incarnation walks this earth, as God and man, God and humanity. When you look at the person of Jesus, you are seeing perfect humanity. You're not only seeing a perfect God, you are seeing perfect humanity. You are seeing the perfect express representation of God. Jesus is the perfect image. You look at him and you see that perfect representation. I think some of the, the language in here is lofty and it could be a bit confusing. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now, when we think firstborn, we, we typically think in temporal terms, like, uh, well, I have mm, a few kids and my firstborn's name is so-and-so. And so you think, what, Jesus is the firstborn? He's got like brothers and sisters or something? No, firstborn in Jewish thought deals with the one in whom authority rests. So King David is not the eldest son, but he's called the firstborn. Israel as a nation is called the firstborn. It deals with authority and preeminence. And you can see that that's the point because look at the language after. This is the language that is being given to Jesus. So whatever your view of Jesus is, it's, it's higher. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything in existence was created through him and for him. And if that was not enough, it says, verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now that line's really easy just to go by, in him all things hold together. Like, no, it's like, stop, wait a second. All things are presently being held together 
by the active will and hand and power of God. You think you exist in this moment independently, as if there's just some laws of nature that hold your body and your being together. And yes, there might be some truth to that, but you always have to ask, what's underneath that, what's underneath that, what's underneath that? And presently, your body as a composite creature is being held in harmonious relationship because the will, power, and hand of God is willing that to be. He takes that away, you come undone. And it's not just you, it's all things. Every atom that composes your being is being presently sustained by the love, will, and power of God. If he were to remove that, you're done. In this moment, you are being held together by the love and power of God. And the scriptures employ that language to Jesus, the perfect image of God. That's incredibly helpful because sometimes it's hard for finite creatures like us to try and picture an infinite, omnipresent, immaterial being. But we have Jesus and we have the gospels where we experience that reality in his person and in his work. Now it goes on. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now here's another radical claim of Christianity. The first is like all human beings are made in his image, but, but look at this last line. What does, what does the perfect image of God do? What is the one who created all things, the one who is holding all things together? It says, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, here's the key, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you want to know what God is like, look to his perfect image, Jesus. And why is he the perfect image? Because he is God and humanity. That's what you see in the incarnation. God the Son wrapped in human flesh. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Now what comes out of that though? What does Jesus do? He makes peace by the blood of his cross. The perfect image of God makes peace by shedding his own blood. Which means, if you wanna know what God is like, you look to Jesus hanging on a cross, dying for sinners. If you wanna know what God is really like, if you wanna look, if God could express his image to humanity so that we can get it, what would it be like? You look to a man named Jesus of Nazareth, hanging in agony upon a Roman cross, dying for his enemies. Now, that claim is unbelievable. You compare that claim to all the other philosophical traditions, ideologies, religious traditions. You hold that up against anything from Plato and Aristotle to to Islam and the like, and you will get nothing like that. 
You want to know what God is like? He's like that man dying on a cross for sinners, rebellious, wayward people who failed to bear the image properly. That's what God is like. That's what he's like. And why does he do that? Because God loved his image bearers. They bear the image. They have value no matter what because they're made in his image, even though they functionally have rebelled against him. So, some questions out of that. Like, whose image do we bear? Well, we bear the image of God. What does that mean? It means you have value. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter your story, what you've done yesterday, what you will do tomorrow, you have a worth that surpasses any other thing in the created order here on earth because you bear that image. Like, that's how much you matter. You go, well, I still don't know how much that matters. Look to the image. Look to Jesus of Nazareth dying on a cross for you. That's how much you matter. That's how important it is. That's the heart of God. But then out of it, there's a challenging question. Because remember, there's a value component and then a function component. We are, as God's people and his image bearers, are to be conformed to that image so that with every passing day, we may reflect back the goodness of God into his creation. So that when people like see us, they're not gonna see, it's not like when you see me, you see Jesus, but you should see a glimpse of the goodness of God in his people. That's the logic of image bearing. You see the image and it points to the greater reality. Now, there's a word, uh, many of you are gonna be familiar with it. It was, it was really used in church circles um, as long as I've been alive, very common. For whatever reason, um, I, I just don't feel like I hear it as much anymore, just in kind of Christian culture at large in the country. Um, it's the word Christ-likeness. It was very popular. It was like people were just like, are you being Christ-like? Are you being more Christ-like? And, and I don't know why it's not used as much, but it, it needs to be recovered because what are we saying when we're asking a human being, are you being Christ-like? You're actually saying, are you functionally bearing the image of God properly? Because the more Christ-like you are, the more you're displaying his image. And the better people ought to be able to glimpse God's goodness in and through your life. This is the inner logic of Christ-likeness, like the theology behind the image of God. So it's not like, oh, just be Christ-like so that people know you're a nice person. It's so they can see a vision for what humanity is all about. And when they see a vision for what humanity is all about, they're not just getting a vision of humanity, they're getting a vision of God. Who he designed us to be. Who, they're, they're seeing what a glimpse of the goodness of God. One of the best compliments you could ever get. This is like one of the best ones. Okay, aspire to get this compliment. Some of you are closer than others. Some of you got a long way to go. Okay. It's when someone says, you know, I don't even, I definitely don't believe what you believe and I got a lot of questions about this whole Christian thing and this Jesus stuff you're telling me. But if the Jesus you're telling me 
about is a little bit like you, I want to know more. And I think I want a part of that. I think I want some of that. And an unbelieving world is in desperate need of Christians giving them a little glimpse of the goodness of God. They're in desperate need of it. And so, and so it's sort of like, this all started with a question about taxes? Yeah, it all started with a question about taxes. <clears throat> and Jesus threw three strikes <clears throat> in a row. Fastball, fastball, fastball. You're done. But in doing that, he was exploring more than just taxes. And he was doing more than just giving an answer to the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians. He's giving an answer to the world. Render to Caesar what he's minted, what he's made. Give to God your entire being, all of you. Because that's what you were designed to do. And when you're doing what you were designed to do, you will reflect the goodness of the character of God into earth. That's what the whole on earth as it is in heaven thing is all about. So as believers, our question today is, are we being Christ-like? Now, um, What's so awesome about this is this is like, we could do this in the ch- like children's ministry or high school ministry. Like, no matter where you're at in life, this is a great question. Am I striving to be Christ-like? Um, have, you, have you lost that desire? Like, are you still reminding yourself as a Christian? Do you pray, God, I wanna be more like your son, Jesus. I wanna be Christ-like. And so what I want, I want you to do is before we, we enter into communion, prepare ourselves co- for communion, ask that, que- ask that question, like, am I still striving to be Christ-like? Do I still have that desire? I want to be conformed to the image of the Son more and more with every passing day. Because sometimes, man, life catches, catches, catches up, it's all these things going on, and you got this stress and this worry, and you're praying for a lot of things, and you're still being faithful, but like, you, you can lose the drive, the desire to say, I want to be like Jesus. And by the way, there's great joys in, joy in bearing his image properly. When humans don't do the human image-bearing thing right, it leads to misery for everybody. And so... Are we striving to be Christ-like? And then out of that question, are there, are there, is there a particular thing where, where I'm just, I'm completely not Christ-like in this area? And, and what's great about that as we lead into communion, as, as we take communion, we're supposed to like check our hearts. And so if there's area where, areas where there's like clear rebellion or negligence to be Christ-like, you say, God, forgive me. Help me to grow in this area. And we're fallen, we're broken, so no one in this room is gonna <clears throat> be the perfect image. That's Christ. But we grow and we conform to him, his image more and more with every passing day. So ask yourself those questions and let's stand as we enter into communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, it's given to you. What is God like? We can talk about his omnipresence, his omnipotence, all of the 
the characteristics and attributes of God which are true and we should talk about them, but the simplest answer to give someone when they want to know what God is like is to say, look to the cross. Look to the cross. This is what God is like. Becoming a human to die on behalf of rebellious sinners. So we take this and we remember. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup, cup of the new covenant. It's his blood poured out on our behalf. Now, when we want to know what God is like, we look to the cross. But we also look to what happens after the cross. Paul reminds us that we take this and we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so we have the image of the cross, the image of the Lamb of God suffering on our behalf. But you also have the image that comes after that, the resurrection. Because Christ is not only the Lamb of God who's slain, he's also the conquering lion. And so you have the image of the death and resurrection, the suffering and the triumph, the death and the victory. That's what our God is like. Lion, lamb, suffering, triumphant. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we, as a church and as individuals, Lord, we pledge our allegiance to you and we promise to proclaim your death and resurrection until you return. And Father, as we close in worship, we want to give ourselves to you wholly, completely. We know we, we hold back parts of ourselves, parts of things in our lives, but we want to be wholly committed to you, a holy God. We are made in your image and have value, but we have a purpose. So help us live out that purpose. Help us to be conformed to the image of your son, the perfect image. And may we be more and more like him. May we be more and more Christ-like. And may that be an astounding, loud, triumphant testimony to a world in desperate need of knowing your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.